But since then, I, I've, I've come up with this idea of, and I don't know how many of you are aware of these games they play, the Avatar. Yeah, people understand that, what, what that is. It's, it's basically a game where you, you get to be who you're not. <laughs> or you get to make up what, whatever you want to do. So I like to call tonight, tonight's talk is uh, using our inner avatar uh, to create a joyful journey of self-discovery. And so just thinking about Avatar, I was writing some notes about it, and it embodies qualities we want to emphasize. And so for me, as I reflect on, on my own recovery, on my own uh, development, my own spiritual path, and I realized that early on, especially it's broken up in different, different segments, but for the most part, about 29 years ago, uh, I, I went into recovery from substance abuse. And how I came to meditation, I should probably stop my, my talk. How I came to this practice was I was in a lot of pain. I had chronic pain. I had migraine headaches and chronic uh, back pain. And so I participated in a study that was given at the Harvard Community Health Plan. And Joan Borisinko was a, was a teacher. And it was called stress management. And so they had us do the pre and post testing. Of course, it wasn't really psychological tests. It was more like physiological tests. So they had us, you know, spit and, you know, urinate in the cup. And then they would, and then I guess they checked. I don't know if they did our blood pressure, but I know we definitely did that. And so they, I learned how to relate to, I learned how to meditate, really. And I learned about yoga and I learned about all of these uh, meditation books. So being the, the perfectionist that I was, uh, what I, I got a syllabus of about, I don't know, maybe 26 books. I read every book on that, on that chart. And she and Jones suggested that we go to the meditation center. And at that time, it was IMS. And so I went there. And not knowing what I was getting into, I went with a cushion. But I had a cushion that was a cushion for a couch or something. It wasn't <laughs> right cushion. So but why am I saying this? I was so enthusiastic, I was so eager, because for me, being in recovery, being able to be present, because I lived in fantasy my whole life, and as a matter of fact, when I, when I left the detox, it was uh, walking distance from my house, it was the first time I ever saw my house, because I lived in fantasy, and, and I just wasn't dealing with on life's terms. So obviously it was a shock to my nervous system to deal with life without a substance, without uh, a pill or whatever, because I played basketball and I was injury prone and they used to give me medication. And I felt, I found that when they gave me that medication, I could talk to people and I could get out of myself. And that's how I got into it. And then I started drinking. But the main thing was when I woke up, I had this sense of wonder and excitement. It was like a little Little, like a, a little kid learning how to walk. I had this excitement. I was really, when I reflect on what I did, whatever they told me to do, I did, except for the things that, that I wasn't uh, feeling. Like they suggested I go into a therapeutic community and they, you know, and they, they, they tear down your, you know, they make you scrub the floor with a toothbrush or stuff like that. And I said, no, I couldn't last there. I'd probably kill somebody if they told me to do that. <laughs> so I knew myself enough that, no, that's not what I wanted to do. But there was still this sense of wonder. This whole world opened up to me, and I was very excited. And 
And I think about my practice in those days just around meditation. I practiced a year on my own before I even, uh, before I went to Barry. Then I went to Barry and I discovered this place, CIMC, and then I started coming here for the Wednesday night talks. And then I would do the weekend retreats. And then they used to have this, I think they still have it, that we had a practice session on Sunday from like 2 to 5.15. So I would do that every day and I, would, I was just very disciplined. I was running four times a week. I was doing all of these things. I, was, I, I, I discovered in recovery that I had to work with my, my body, my mind, my heart, and my spirit. And so I would do the physical exercise. I'd come here and meditate. I was, I was studying and reading average about a book a week for the last 29 years just really f realized that I, get, I have this need to be intellectually stimulated. And of course, growing up where I grew up, you know, that wasn't really cool, you know, because we were, you know, we'd rather be doing something else than, well, I got to go home and study. That just didn't go well with the guys. But, but when I got in recovery, I realized that, no, if I have to read something 20 times, I can read it 20 times. It doesn't really matter. And so this whole joy of discovery was really helpful to me. And then on top of that, taking this stress management course and learning about stress hardiness, learning that, you know, that I, you know, I, I can look at things that I can control my reaction or response to something. I, I could, um, I can commit to my own self-development and that I could see things that were stressful as challenges. And so I just, so to me, I started developing this, what they call self-efficacy, a positive self-efficacy, that I realized that, okay, if I can manage my, my addictions and if I could start to really understand that by coming here and learning how to look inside, learning how to deal with um, the stress of life, learning how to deal with suffering, but not only learning how to deal with suffering, but learning how it manifests in my individual self. And that by doing this practice and doing the other things that I started to, to get a glimpse of, of who I was as an individual and my uniqueness. And, it's, and it's, it was through this practice and for the first couple of years, it just seemed like it was awesome. I would go to Barry for weekend retreats. It was just like everything was just new and exciting. And then I went to graduate school and then other things happened and all of a sudden, it wasn't like that. And even coming here and practicing, what I noticed was that I had a lot of that warrior energy, so I was striving a lot. So my practice, even though I loved coming, it was hard. I mean, I was like, I sat through so much pain that this needs would never be the same. And I just had that, that edge. I just had this, this edge, and then life got involved, and I was busy, and of course, as I got more competent, I relied less on my spiritual practice, and I would meditate and everything, but I, it, it was okay, but it wasn't joyful anymore. And so at some point over the years, I think maybe the last couple of years, I was thinking about it, and I remembered what it was like being on Brattle Street in a coffee shop, having that sense of wonder I was going to write books and lecture and do all this other stuff. And I got back in touch with that feeling. And then I started realizing as I reflected on my meditation practice, as it evolved, that I realized that I was making this way too complicated. Everything 
too complicated, that I was trying to strive. And really, it's really as simple as just settling back and just watching the world go by, just observing things in a way, and that I don't have to write a book or do X, Y, or Z to be happy, that I could be happy now. And that, that having a joyful journey has more to do with being present now and enjoying each moment, enjoying each moment. And I work with my clients, and that's what I, what I offer them, is this idea of a joyful journey. So, so what does that mean? So I, have, I wrote some notes down here. Um, so to me, when I reflect on my own practice, I realize that the way of wisdom is the way to freedom. So when I learn about stress reduction or, or managing stress or how to deal with suffering, it's really about uh, being, you know, developing wisdom or getting on the path of, of wisdom. And the Buddha really summed up the practice succinctly when he said, do good, avoid evil, and purify the mind and heart. And so no matter what I do, that I can... I'm on the path of purification, that not just sitting in meditation, but when I engage with people, when I engage with myself, that I can have a, a, a wholesome mind state, like love, and love could be my meditation. That could be my higher power, because one of the things I recognize about myself that I think is true with everyone is that we all have Buddha nature, we all have Christ consciousness, and if I were to go back to what Michelangelo said when they asked him how did he create these masterpieces, he said all he does is chip away to get to the masterpiece that's already there. So there's really nothing wrong with me. There's nothing wrong with the people I work with. There's nothing wrong with you. It's really about how do we relate to life in a way that allows us to access that divinity, that allows us to, to get in touch with our Buddha nature or our Christ consciousness, or however you want to call it. But there's a divinity there that's, that, that we can experience now. We don't have to wait for enlightenment, or we don't have to wait until we do a three-month course. We can experience it now just by being present and, and really looking at how we are living our lives. And so when we talk about right effort, we talk about the four right efforts, and one of them is to, you know, when a negative, well, first of all, we start to understand what is skillful, what is unskillful, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. And so around here, we know that if you got greed in the mind, it's probably not going to be a good uh, outcome. <laughs> if, you, if, you ha if you have aversion or fear, doubt, insecurity, any of those, it's not going to be a good outcome. As a matter of fact, you will probably not be able to see what's happening because we call it a hindrance. So not only does it hinder our ability to concentrate and be present, but it hinders our ability to see clearly. And so that if we understand that even for me, when I would go and sit, I would have, you know, I had a lot of greed because I had spiritual greed. I wanted to get this yesterday. And so I sit down, and that was wrong effort for a long time. I, I had that wrong effort. I was sitting down here, so I got to get this. It's going to be great. And then I realized that, no, that, that the, the mind that, I was, that was observing my experience was starting off in the wrong way. So I was spending most of my time just trying to be present when I had, I had a calesa, one of the hindrances in mind. And what I realized was that even with my teaching, I noticed as I reflected on my teaching, when I teach people, I do a lot of talking, and I actually, what I actually do is I actually purify, help them get into a positive mind state so that now when they meditate, when they look at themselves, 
there's less reactivity. And so there's this whole idea of that we can really program ourselves, program the mind to be in a positive mind state so that when we go to sit or actually we could practice all day between the time we wake up and the time we go to bed, that if we are aware of the mind as it observing the quality of the mind, that that can really make things a lot easier and that we could have a lot more fun just by noticing that when we have a bad attitude, that's how we used to call it when I was growing up, uh, when you have a bad attitude, like don't mess with me or, you know, or I'm unhappy because my team lost, or who knows, maybe I broke a fingernail, who knows? But for whatever reason, I, I got this bad attitude, and that bad attitude not only colors everything I see and do, but it also affects the people around me because most people don't want to be around people who are angry or frustrated or whatever. So it's not to judge, but it's to understand that we can create, there's a possibility for us that we, we, can, we can experience the good stuff now. We don't have to wait until we achieve something or sit half an hour or any of that stuff, that there's a way of being, there's a way of relating to ourselves, there's a way of relating to our experience. So we learn when a negative mind state arises, how do we abandon it? And I don't mean like, okay, I'm gonna do metta just so I can, in order to get rid of this anger. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about really embracing the anger without getting um, lost in it. So I like to use the analogy of my, my clients, people I work with, of the hurricane. So there's the eye of the hurricane, and then there's all that, some sour turmoil. And that regardless, we're the eye of that hurricane. That in the middle of all of this stuff, there's a part of us that's, that if we come from that quiet, that place of rest inside, that divinity, that there's an ability to just observe what is happening without being mindful about observing it, just like a mirror, just reflecting what's there without making it me or mine or I, or just seeing it, that our thoughts are not who we are, our, our feelings are not who we are. We experience them, but can we experience them and allow them to just flow through us without creating um, a story about it and a sense of identity of who I am? Does that make sense? And so it's just it's real simple, like, like even now, just listening to me. It's possible to just sit back and just chill. And I don't mean like chill like this. <laughs> I mean like just be okay and just listen to what's being offered without preconceived ideas or anything, but just hear what is being offered. And I have a little description of what I'm talking about. And as you can see, I, sometimes I talk without notes, sometimes I do. And there's a thing here about... And and what I think we're trying to do here is we, we, we have mindfulness and, and wisdom together. So we observe things and we're learning things. If we can see things as they are, we start to see how things really are, not only externally but internally. And so there's this idea of a mood of wonder. And it's a gentleman by the name of Eugene Fink. And this is what he says. What does this mean? It implies an approach that can shatter the taken for grantedness of our everyday reality. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. So I'm gonna read that again. Wonder is the unwilled willingness to meet what is utterly strange and what is most familiar. 
It is the willingness to step back and let things speak to us, a passive receptivity to let the things of the world present themselves in their own terms. And so for me, it's interesting because I have an experience of this when in my other life I was a financial analyst. And what used to happen sometimes is I would generate these numbers and just sit back and, and let the numbers tell me a story. It's the same thing now when I work with clients and I do psychological testing, when I test their mental, um, mental strengths, that I just let, the, I let it speak to me. And instead of saying, okay, this is because this mind, this habitual mind we has, have, has this habit of wanting to know what the answer is before we hear the question. <laughs> and that, that this, this culture really appreciates being able to do multiple things at once. And so a lot of times we habitually go through things and we're relating to what our experience based on what happened in the past, through the lens of the past, not really with what's happening right here and now. Because even though it might be the same content, it's a different context. You know, it's one thing for me to think that I could, you know, run an eight-minute mile 20 years ago. <laughs> but that's the, I can't even run now because of my <laughs> knees. So it's understanding and not making myself... Uh, you know, like unworthy or anything, it's just the way it is. My body says, been there, done that, can't go back there. <laughs> and so it's this understanding, you understand what I'm saying? That we start to see that, that if we pay attention, w there's a lot we can learn. Like my buddy Yogi Berra said, you can see a lot just by observing. <laughs> you know, and it's like, and it's what is this, but in the practice, so it's important that we understand that there's, you know, we already have Buddha nature, and, and having a human birth in this, in this tradition is really magnificent. And so our ability to cultivate love, cultivate, cultivate happiness, cultivate peace, can really be helpful in this process of, uh, and then discovering self in a way where, oh, this is great, because one of the factors of enlightenment is investigation. And, and we know from the neuroscience that when you, when you re rewire the brains that, you know, they talk about neuroplasticity, you have to have four components that really enhance it. And one is to, to, to do aerobic exercise so there's enough oxygen. Okay, the second thing is, is to do things incrementally. So, you know, that's, that's a, a recovering perfectionist nightmare, but do things <laughs> incrementally. And then the third thing is, it's got to be hard to do, but doable. So you're, you're challenged. So you actually get in a high state of arousal, the fight or flight. That's why the, the, the poise or the relaxation is really important. And the fourth thing is to ha be interested in it so that we motivate the, we, in it, we, we activate the motivational circuits in the brain. And so this is all scientific. Although in the practice, we've known that, that if you're in a positive state of mind, that good things happen, and, and then we can, we can go into the research. There's a guy down the street here called, his name is Sean Encore, and he wrote a book called The Happiness Advantage, and I'll share some of the <coughs> insights there. Uh, but basically, what, what he says is that, the research says that we're happy first and then we're successful, not that we're successful and, ha and happy later. And so I'm gonna read some of what he said. Actually. This, this text that I read from, he has a, uh, he was on um, PBS and he did an hour special, but he was, he's also on YouTube and he's also on TED Talks. 
and, he, and his shy anchor with, with happiness. And it's about a 12-minute talk. He really gets a lot in in 12, sec 12 minutes. But he says, 90% of your long-term happiness is predicted not by the external world, but by the way your brain processes the world. And if you change it, if we change our formula for happiness and success, what we can do is change, is change the way that we can then affect reality. And then this is another study. What we found is that only 25% of job successes are predicted by IQ. 75% of job successes are predicted by your optimism levels, your social support, and your ability to see stress as a challenge instead of a, as a threat. So remember I talked about the, the three C's for me to get that stress hardiness and also this idea, and I know this working with elite athletes. Elite athletes know that when they're in a high state of arousal, they don't look at it like, okay, I can't handle this. They say, oh, this is going to be great. It's a, it's a challenge. And then they, because, and then they know if they don't succeed, it's not because they're not good enough or they're not talented enough. It means that they got to develop more skill and more knowledge, get more knowledge and get more experience. It's really that simple. And it's just by, so that perception and the proverbial glass comes into mind when I work with people. It's half empty, half full. Both are right. But one gives us in a state of, of scarcity and, and the other one abundance and say, okay, I can handle this. And I know this from my work, uh, not only myself working in, on my own stress, but when I worked in the Center for Mindfulness Stress Reduction Program, that I know that if there's one thing that we can control, then that grows. That grows, and then we get a little bit of confidence, and then, then we continue to go, and we get more confidence, we get more confidence, we get more confidence. So it's really about attitude. It's really about saying that, okay, I can handle this. Or if I don't know, I'm willing to go and ask for help. Or if there's doubt that we keep asking questions and we really understand what's going on. But the real focus needs to be on our subjective experience. So that even though we have teachings, the Buddha, even the Buddha said, see for yourself. Have a direct experience. Because part of wisdom can be seen as information. Another part of wisdom has to do with intellect or rational thinking. But of course, if your foundation is wrong, the rationale is going to be wrong. But that's another way of reflection. We reflect in here, okay, not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to take intoxicants, not to get involved in sex sexual misconduct. So we reflect on that and we say, okay, we're not going to do that. And by reflecting on it, and then what we realize is through our own experience, we see that we create more safety for ourselves. We have more self-honesty. We have uh, energy that, that people seem to be comfortable around, that there's this way of using the mind to help us and, and to reflect ahead of time, okay, if I do this, then is it going to take me closer to my goal? Is it, go is it going to be wholesome? Is it going to, be, it's going to lead to more peace or is it going to lead to more stress? And, and that sort of thing. But then the third aspect of, of, um, of wisdom has to do with direct experience, uh, insight, seeing for ourselves. So for myself, originally, buddy of mine came and got me and I said, okay, he's not drinking, he's not getting high, maybe I could do that. And then it got to the point where first he opened it up and I reflected on it and then I tried it, but then when I had the experience that, you know, I had this obsession to use when I got out of the detox. And I had three, three weeks of checks in my pocket and 
I was obsessed. Like the get high thing was there, the compulsion was there. And I went into the men's room and I learned this from 12 step, but it's, it was meditation because it was a spiritual experience. I recited the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So I did that over and over, and the obsession was removed. So it was my first meditative experience. Well, not the first one. I had others, but that was one that I, where I was changing or abandoning unwholesome mind state. Does that make sense? And so we can go through all four and say, okay, there's, when it, you know, prevent it from arising, unwholesome mind state or abandon it when it comes and then or uh, arouse mindfulness or love or peace happiness and then understanding not only how to make it arise but how to maintain it and perfect it and so that's kind of what my talk tonight is on that part of taking something like love like happiness and cultivating that because when you're happy you can't be sad <laughs> <laughs> And you don't have to take my word for it. Let me read some of the research that he says here. Um, let me see. Okay, so. Okay, here we go. Happiness is the happiness advantage. Happiness impacts every aspect of your life. Students do much better in school on tests when their brains are positive. You are much more successful at work. Improve your brain health. Increases energy up to 31%. Decreases heart disease by up to 30%, drops fatigue-related symptoms up to 23%, decreases chances of depression up to 31%, makes you more successful at losing weight, and helps you make better financial decisions. Happiness scientifically is a choice. And then he has these uh, happiness um, research things that you could do. Like one of them is, do you, do you know just by smiling, uh, Three times a day, what is it? Let me see, okay, three things. Okay, here's the one I like, because Oprah's into this one. <laughs> I was, I was uh, it works for her. So I was watching her this, this week, weekend on uh, Super Soul Sunday, and she had uh, Maya Angelou on there, and Maya Angelou was the one that talked to her about having an attitude of gratitude. I know that from program. But here's what they say. Three things to be grateful for. You do this every day. It takes 21 days to create a new life habit. So for 21 days in a row, right? or say out loud three things that you are grateful for that are new and happened within the last 24 hours. Be specific. I am grateful that I, I live in a neighborhood where I can walk without driving to a suitable location to walk in peace. And so when you, we do that, so what happens when we do that? Well, when we do that, what we're doing is we're programming our mind to notice great, great things to be grateful for. Now, reverse it. The way we do it now, oh, things are bad, they're gonna get worse. I mean, I watch, Sometimes I, I, I you know, like get in the habit of turning on the TV and watching the talking heads. And I watched yesterday, and so we averted a strike. And you think everybody on that program was depressed? <laughs> yeah, but I don't like the way you did it. Or it didn't do fast enough. Or I don't, and I'm, I'm watching, I'm listening to these people and saying, wow. I used, to, I used to be like that, and I'm like that now sometimes if I don't catch myself. But it's like they focus on what's wrong, but then again, if you think about it, the whole field of psychology up until this positive psychology movement is all about pathology. That's what we focus on, what's wrong? Well, why did you do that? Well, that gives you a good analysis of what happened, um, of the problem, but it doesn't solve it. What solves it is focusing on the outcome you want, focusing on how to be more loving, 
how to be more peaceful, how to ha have more happiness. It's just to think about this stuff. So this is real simple stuff, but it has, profound, has a profound effect. And so that's, that's just some of the stuff. I don't want to talk a lot more. There's a few other things that I, I want to mention because it does affect. And if you, just a little hint, if some of you are going for physical, uh, if you give your doctor some chocolate, it, enha it enhances his, his or her ability to, uh, uh, to not anchor. Anchoring occurs when a doctor has trouble letting go of an initial diagnosis, anchoring point. <laughs> Even in the face of new information that contradicts the initial theory. Happy doctors made the right diagnosis much faster and exhibited much more creativity. On average, they came to a correct diagnosis only 20% of the way through the, the manuscript, through the manuscript or whatever, nearly twice as fast as a control group and showed about two and a half times less anchoring. And so the doctors were primed with candy. All it took was a little gift of candy. Remember, give the, the teacher an uh, apple or something? Uh, give a little piece of candy right before they started the task. Even the smallest shots of positivity can give someone a serious competitive edge. Now, they don't eat the candy right away, but they put it aside and they're thinking about that. <laughs> they're thinking about that. You know, that, that expectation can help. You know, it's going to be great. Now, how many of us go to the dentist and say it's going to be great? <laughs> I'm going to get filling. I got a root canal coming or wisdom teeth. It's going to be great. You know, I'm going to enjoy myself and, you know, he's going to earn a little money and, you know, I'm going to lose a little wisdom. <laughs> so, so you get what I'm saying. So, it's, so all of this stuff is saying things like that. So that's just one of them. The second one is the doubler. And think of a meaningful experience, and for two minutes a day, for 21 days in a row, write down every detail you can do. This is journaling, using a different experience. Now, not that you need to know this, but Area 17, which is the visual con uh, context, um, cortex, and visual and the actual, so it, it lights up. So here's what I mean by that. The brain doesn't know the difference between what we experience and what we think about, okay? So this thing about something bad happens to you and you think about it. Or like when 9-11 happened and, and we kept seeing the, the thing over and over, we keep reliving it, we keep reliving it, we keep reliving it. So when you have a good experience and you write about it, you get the double you get the double effect because you, you ex re-experience it f by writing it and, and re-experience it by thinking about it. And so I know that I've done that the other way where somebody slighted me and I was all over that, thinking about it and reflecting on it and telling other people about it. <laughs> so, so you get what I'm saying? So we could do that. And then the third thing is, 15 minutes a day, just, you know, when you do a physical activity, be mindful of it. And it says, yeah, any activity of your day have to be active. It has to be active and, and be mindful of the activity. And then the third, fourth one is the ripple effect. And I, I experienced this on, on a three-month retreat when I was there. Some days, man, it was hard. And sometimes somebody will walk by and they just give you a little smile. And, man, it changes the whole day. Of course, you can see the other one when they give you a frown or... They look at you like, uh, you know, why are you in my space? That's a whole different thing. But this is how sensitive we are. But just three smiles a day, really, and, and it's contagious. Emotions are contagious. They have what they call these, these mirror neurons in our brain that, that allows that. That's why sometimes we can experience what other people feel. That's why we'll watch TV, and when somebody get hit, gets hit on the head, 
we say, oh, man, we, we grab our head or whatever because we are experiencing that experience. And then the last one was meaningful social uh, connections. And I think this is really important. Think about one person in your social support network and for two minutes write them a positive note or, or email. Of course, that includes tweeting, right? And, uh, and uh, you know, texting and all that other stuff, although speaking to them is good too, but, <laughs> but getting a little note from somebody can make a difference. So that's just five of them. There's numerous ones, but, but those are just the five. So just to, so what I'm saying is in the midst of our activity, no matter what we're doing, we have this possibility of being present and really checking out our mind. Okay, what's the quality of my mind? Is it, is it negative? Is it positive? Is it tight? Is it, is it open? Because the other thing I forgot to mention is when we do practice and get into a positive mind state, that our cognitive function, they call it the broadening effect, so that we actually see see more opportunities rather than the opposite which is the fight or flight response where we get in a tunnel vision so our whole processing the way we think we feel what we see how we behave that all gets impacted just by this simple idea of of or starting off on a good foot or really saying okay i'm going to do something i'm going to change my mind and of course when i was younger i didn't really know what i was doing but what i would do sometimes especially growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, there wasn't a lot to be happy about. And sometimes me and the fellas would get on the stoop and we'd be talking and laughing and making jokes and lying <laughs> or exaggerating, you know. You know, yeah, man, you know, I scored 50 points, I mean, 25 points yesterday, or, you know, like I caught this fish or whatever. But I realized what we were doing was we were altering consciousness. And what I used to do when I used to feel down is I would play, I would go to the stereo and play music. And that would alter my consciousness. So I was doing things, and I'm sure all of us, if we reflect, we'll see that there were things we did that were even healthy that could change our attitude, could, could alter our consciousness so that we could be more available for our lives. So I don't know what, how much more I want to say. There's a lot here, but I don't want to uh, talk about it more than just to say, maybe I'll read this poem. It's called The Master, Master the Art of Living. A Zen poet said, a person who is a master in the art of living makes little distinction between their work and their play, their labor and their leisure, their mind and their body, their education and their recreation, their love and their religion. They hardly know which is which. They simply pursue their vision of excellence and grace in whatever they do, leaving others to decide whether they are working or playing. To them, they are always doing both. So to me, my, my idea of heaven is is, is um, gladly engaging in wholesome activity. In other words, being really good at helping people and really enjoying it while I'm doing it. That sounds like heaven to me. It's just be, be enjoying doing good works. I mean, and I think that's what the Buddha was talking about. And if there's anything else I want to say about anything. Oh, I'll just talk about, and this is a quote I picked up from watching Oprah on Sunday, Maya Angelou. She said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. So think about that. You give somebody a note, you give them a smile, or you catch them doing something right. That's what I tell my student athletes all the time. Catch yourself, catch your teammates doing something right. Because we're really good at, at telling people what they need to change or do. 
but it's really hard to really um, catch ourselves or to, or to notice when things are going well. So one of the things that I also, I'll talk, so I talk about love a little bit, <coughs> and Eric Fromm wrote this book called The Art of Loving, and I think it's very, very good because he talks about love is active, not a passive affect. It is standing in, not a falling for it. And the most general way, the active character of love can be described as, as stating <coughs> that love is primarily given, not receiving. <coughs> so giving is the highest expression of potent potency and the very act of giving I experience my strength my wealth my power the experience of heightened vitality and potency fills me with joy I experience myself as overflowing spending alive hence joyous giving is more joyous than receiving not because it is a deprivation but because in the act of giving lies the expression of my aliveness so so he talks about uh, love is the act of concern for the life and growth of that which we love and so he says that to the essence of love is to labor for something or to make something grow. That love and labor are inseparable. One loves that for which one labors and one labors for that which one loves. And so he talks about care. So if I'm talking about self-love, because we're focusing on the self, um, then it's that. When I learn things and when I become more wise, I am actually allowing my wisdom to grow as an act of love and care responding to my needs. Uh, then responsibility is, is the next one when he talks about to be responsible means to be able to, and ready to respond. The life of, of his brother is not his brother's alone, but our own. So this gets us out of this illusion of separateness that we all connected. And I know in 12-step in recovery, especially in AA, the whole focus is on um, helping another alcoholic or somebody is sick and suffering, so that you get out of yourself and you're giving, you're, you're, you're sharing with them, you're doing things. Now, we could do that for anybody. It doesn't necessarily have to be an alcoholic. But, and then we feel, we feel responsible for our fellow men. And, and in the love between adults, it refers mainly to the psychic needs of the other person. And so there's care, then there's responsibility, responding, ability to respond. There's respect, the ability to see person as she is, and to be aware of her unique individuality. And this is the, the crux of what I wanted to get to is the fact like we all have Buddha nature, but we all are unique. We all have something special. And that one definition of poise or peace, if we want to talk about it, I get it from this, this gentleman who was a Hall of Fame coach, his name was John Wooden. And he's, his definition of poise is just being yourself. So if we are Buddha nature, we are ourselves no matter what. That's poise, that's peace, that's standing and in, in, uh, being ourselves. Because a couple of other uh, people here talk about how healthy that is. The guy that wrote the book, um, The Stress of Life, Hans Selye, he says, he says, resolve to be thyself and know that he who finds himself loses his misery. Knowing what hurts you has an inherent curative value. And then he says, our failure to adjust ourselves correctly to life situations is at the very root of the disease producing conflicts. Not knowing what is wrong makes us worry. So there's, there's a lot of value in not only doing the practice, but from a subjective expense, having our own experience and seeing that when the mind is in a wholesome state, that we see more clearly, we're happy, 
and, and the consequences of our, of our behavior is, is conducive to harmony, conducive to, to good, you know, doing, doing good. And not only that, but it, it purifies our heart. So that's the challenge is each person being themselves uh, and using this, this as a joyful journey of self-discovery and saying, well, what is this? You know, when, when a, a wholesome mind state comes up or when we have a crisis, can we understand that crisis has two meanings? One is danger, the other one is opportunity. Can we, because as Viktor Frankl says, is sometimes, you know, meaning has to do with our choice of how we respond to unavoidable suffering. Whether we're in a concentration camp or we get diagnosed with, with cancer or a loved one dies or whatever, we can always choose our response to it. Can we respond with love? Can we be fully present for what is happening? And of course, not all of us have to go to that degree. It's really about accepting what is and then ad adjusting, adapting to it, or not being okay with somebody disrespecting somebody else, but being able in a loving way to, to, to intercede or at least realize that, you know, we are all connected and we're, in all, we're all in this together. And so with the, in this tradition, we talk about the Buddha, who's a person like ourselves, did achieve enlightenment, there's the, there's the Dharma or the, the teachings, and then there's the Sangha of like-minded people. And sometimes we refer to teachers as friends, somebody who's on the path so that we share, we have these conversations, we contemplate, we talk about how to purify the mind and the heart, how to do good and avoid evil without making us wrong or without judging, just being able to kind of do that. So I don't want to talk a lot more, but that's pretty much... Um, there's more, but I think that's enough for now. Just, just to understand that, uh, maybe I'll read something from, from uh, Edgar Casey. He says, not knowing ourselves, we live out our days driven by the pressures of the world, of those about us, and of the immediate desires and intentions of the physical body. We allow habits and addictions, I know that one, and compulsions to, to guide our activities rather than our own higher sense of what is right and most valuable for ourselves and others. So I, I just think that, you know, just this possibility of really doing this work, but enjoying it and being fully present and really cultivating these positive mind states so that we can enjoy, be happy now. We can end suffering now or we can reduce suffering to a significant degree just by forming the intention to be happy, to do the things that help us to be happy so that it's not to minimize sitting or any of the other stuff. It's, it's, it enhances everything that we do. And so for me, when I can be loving, because to me that's my spiritual ideal, when I can be loving to myself and others, no matter who I am or where, I mean, no matter where I am or who I'm engaged with, if I can be m more loving. And if it's a case where it's hard, I can be tolerant or I can just be not judge. That makes a big difference. And we like being altruistic. We're wired for that. And so, to me, is when we see that, when we reflect on it, the more we do it, it becomes a habit. So now we start to see the goodness. We start to see the Buddha nature in everybody. And then we can have some compassion and we can judge a little bit less because the world definitely needs this because you can see this judging going all over the place and, and we have this need to be right. And sometimes we have to give up being right even when we are just for peace of mind. We don't have to, but it's a way to peace. Because you might be right, but you don't have any peace. And, and it doesn't get you what you want because the other person ain't changing. 
So it's this idea of understanding, and this practice is about letting go. This practice is about just being attentive. Now, I did have something that I wanted to read by Ajahn Chah, but I don't have it with me, but I'll just phrase it. He said that when I let go a little bit, I have a little peace. When I let go a lot, I have a lot of peace. When I let go completely, I have complete peace. And so I'll end with that, and we can just sit for a minute, and then we'll have questions. And this is um, loving kindness. May all beings, especially the beings that were affected by 9-11, in that there's a possibility of praying, not only praying for, but sending out love, loving kindness, compassion to all beings, not only the people who were the victims, but the perpetrators as well. Okay, questions? Do we have mics or are we gonna just speak without mics? And I know some people have to go. Thank you for coming. Questions? Maybe I should have spoke about courage a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. Or maybe you all are just blissed out and don't want to say anything. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious if you talked if you taught meditation to the prisoners you worked with, and also if you had any surprises or insights in working with prisoners. How much time do you have? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I taught um, in a number of, of institutions, female population as well as male. But I know early on, uh, because initially I was doing it on my own, and then it, then it got incorporated into the Center for Mindfulness, and then, then there were, I was in, responsible for training teachers and, and, and managing them and going to all of the facilities. But prior to that, I was teaching in this facility uh, called Bay State. And some of you, back when Ronald Reagan was, uh, was running for president, you remember the name Willie Horton, the guy that escaped. Well, they built um, Bay State just for that, so that I, I worked with lifers. Some of them were double lifers. They had been in prison over 20 years, some 30 years. And I used to go in and work with them, and they were some of the best students I ever worked with because they would be grateful for me to come in and work with them. And they were able to, uh, I could talk to them about the Buddha or Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter, we just, 
spoke spirit, you know, were in the spirituality and, and they had a practice. They were trying to make the most out of the life that they had, even though they knew they were never going to get out of, out of there. So I, so that was a profound experience. But what happened, because I don't, maybe you don't know this, but when you go into the correction office uh, facility, it's, it's a challenge because sometimes they'll make me wait for a half an hour, an hour before I even get in. Then when I get in, the place is filthy, so I have to mop the floor and get things done. So I would do that sometimes. But we would be meditating, and then the intercom would come on, and it would be the voice of some CO, and they say, so-and-so, go to X, Y, and Z. And can you imagine if you're sitting and meditating, and the voice of your enemy comes, comes in and interrupts your meditation? You're probably not a happy camper about that. So what happened was, uh, this one, one inmate talked about how angry he got. And so what we decided to do was we started to use the intercom as a mindfulness belt, like Titnaham talked about, so that we, they were able to just observe the fact that they were hearing. So we practiced bare attention just at the sense door of sound. And just hearing, instead of going from hearing to unpleasant, to labeling, oh, that's so-and-so, I can't stand him, then the proliferation of thoughts. And then what might happen is he might walk out of there and see the dude and just grab him. Because that's what can happen. So them being able to understand that and to see, okay, I can have anger and I can just, or I can nip it in the bud before it gets to a place where it's hard. Because part of the process of perception or being mindful is to elongate that, that, that small, sense when we notice something before we take off so that 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 space just like what a stimulus and response that we create space between stimulus and response so that we can actually pause and think about or reflect on what we want to do so we elongate that 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 part of perception that's very short and you know instantaneously that you can create you can train the mind to just create more space around what we hear or whatever comes in one of the sense doors. Then they call that guarding the sense doors, some level just noticing your hearing and not allowing the sound out there to be a fire engine or whatever it is. Just notice that you're hearing. And so that was one of the profound things. But the other profound thing was that I used to teach correction officers at the, at the um, they had a midfield training facility, and part of their, they used to have to do 80 hours a week, a, a year of training to requalify, whatever. And what I found was some of the correction officers, because they could be calm, they could talk to the inmates, and they knew the inmates were in the program, and they could calm things down and really prevent things from escalating. So their, their energy, their ability to be calm, their ability to relate in a loving way to the inmates made a big difference. I don't know if you folks watched the Birdman of Alcatraz, Travis, but the, the correction officer who was uh, Neville Brand, I think is his name, and that guy actually, he was, a, he was a World War II hero or something. He was like a Medal of Honor recipient or whatever. But he was his good friend, and, and you know, he, they develop a relationship with each other. And, and that can happen when we can be, let our human when we can open our heart and just see that the other person is suffering and it's not personal. So those are just two, but I'm sure there's more. So they were able to accomplish that? Yes, wow. definitely. That's, yeah, that was very powerful. Huge. Yeah, that could probably save somebody's life. Yes. yes. Uh, they, they, you want to send that back? 
Yeah, but some people are hard of hearing, so they might. So, and yeah, so that way everybody can hear. Are there still programs in the prisons? Uh, I know of some people that are volunteering, like I know the Shambhala groups, but pretty much what happened in 1996 is the, the uh, governor at the time, Governor Weld, uh, because it was political to get rid of all these programs, they termed coddling inmates. And even though it reduced recidivism, it was our program, there was, there was a running program, there was our program, and there were other programs. They just kicked them out of the facility, even though they weren't paying for it, because I used to get funding from criminal justice, which is a federal organization. So I used to get the funding, but they just didn't want us in there. So, but I think there's some programs in there, not, probably not to the degree that we had, because we had over 5,000 inmates go through our program in that five-year period. So, so I'm not, yeah. You got another question? Has there been any work done with gangs, like youth? Um, yes, um, and I think somebody picked up where I left off, but, but last year, was it last year? I think it was last year. I used to go to Chicago once a month and work with a group called the Violence Interrupters, and um, they had a PBS special about them. These were ex-gang members that had been in prison. They would go and work with gangs, and they'd try to stop the shooting, so they were getting, you know, so like they'd stop the retaliation, but they did a lot of work with gangs. Some of them gotten shot in, in that process. But I used to go and work with them two days a, a month. And I was working with them, helping them deal with their own trauma. And it's interesting because I hadn't worked in a prison since 1996. And fast forwarding, these guys could have been the guys that I worked with in prison that were now out and, and trying to get back to society. And of course, that was part of my design was to have these guys train them in the prison and then have them come out and go into the neighborhoods and actually teach this stuff to, to the gang members. So on some level, I'm hoping that some of those guys that I work with are possibly doing that because they did talk to me about, they wanted me to actually help them do that or, or go in and offer that to some of these young folks, especially the ones that were just about to get into the gangs or were on the periphery. So yeah, it's definitely, and I think um, this, this guy by the name of Fleet Mall, I think he's picking that up, his organization. Uh, he's out of, uh, out of uh, Rhode Island. So, yeah. Thanks for the question. Yes. Hi. I had a comment and a question. Yes. Um, I'm actually taking a course now with Fleet Mall. Yeah. And he's got people all over the world. That's right. Taking these webinars and uh, working in prisons and mm -hmm. uh, being trained to really be effective in the prisons. Um, I had a question about uh, working with someone who has depression. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I loved your thing about, um, you know, if you're happy, you can't be unhappy. Mm -hmm. But when your life, um, is pervaded by unhappiness. Mm -hmm. um, how do you make that first, you know, bit to spiral to start to think that something positive could happen, um, especially with someone who's incredibly bright mm -hmm. and can like talk circles around you? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the best thing, to, one thing to do is to get them to feel instead of to think, because their best thinker is not helping them. And, and they are identified with it. And so there's a payoff. We have to understand there's a payoff to being 
that way. And part of that is it's, it's helpful to be with the devil. It, it's, it's less stressful to be with the devil you know than the devil you don't. And so, so there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a payoff there. So once we can get what the payoff is or what need that happens to be addressing, then there may be an opportunity for them to actually experience it because they could experience happiness and then interpret it as being, yeah, but that's luck or, you know, that's not going to happen again, you know. And, and because so on some level, I think it comes down to them getting that burning desire to want to change or want to transform. I don't think we can underestimate that. But if they could see the possibility of like I did with my friend, then it's possible. So it may be for them to somehow be in contact with somebody who was depressed, who can speak to where they are and share with them how they were able to dig themselves out. But even with that, they may not be ready to let go. And so it doesn't matter unless you're ready or unless the person is really ready uh, they're not. Now, for me, I call my method of motivation AOF, which is ass on fire. So, <laughs> so for me, I had to have that because people told me this stuff when I was in college and stuff, and I tell them, you know, get out of here. You know, I don't want to hear that. It's too cool for that. So it wasn't until I, you know, I hit my own bottom where it was too painful for me to keep doing what I was doing and too painful to leave, but. It got to the point where I wanted to try something, but once again, I had this friend of mine who I saw, he, he demonstrated to me that it was possible. And so just creating that possibility. But part of it also is just you connecting with them and just trying to tease out, trying to, trying to find something that they're interested in. I'm thinking of Helen Keller and her teacher, Ann Sullivan. She had to create a whole way of creating concepts. So as that, uh, that attentiveness, that care, that love, that, you know, that not giving up, uh, sometimes that works if the person is willing and if, you're, if you have the time and the energy to do that. Um, but I think having somebody who's like them that they can identify with and see dig themselves out could be helpful. But maybe if they do these happiness things or they do something like physical activity, because that's another thing we know that when you're depressed, you don't feel like doing anything. That's when you need to do something because you do something, you'll feel better. You know, so so there's you. But that's something, as I would normally say, is more sitting is required. You need to meditate on it and really get a sense for, OK, what is it you want to do and how can you connect with them? But the real question is, do they want to be helped? Yes. You want to, could you pass it out? Thank you. Thank you. This is um, so helpful. And I think this relates to your question and your answer. But I was curious about the idea of gratitude. Mm -hmm. I travel also with those people who preach an attitude of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm new to studying the Buddha's teachings. I've been um, you know, meditating for a little mm -hmm. while. But um, I'm curious about kind of how you wrap that. You, you weave a lot of things in that I hear all the time, and, um, but strictly like the gratitude mm -hmm. piece um, to me is powerful. And relating to that, I know I was reading some of, um, is it Rick Hansen who does uh, Just just One Thing mm -hmm. and has talked about, um, you know, whenever something good happens, sit with it for a minute so mm -hmm. that it'll settle in your brain. 
but specifically in relation to the practice. I don't know. Could you just elaborate more? Yes, about we the talk about gratitude? we talk about wise reflection, and some of the reflections are reflecting on the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, heavenly beings, and 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 other things. So it's just wise reflection, and and we also talk about the Brahma Viharas, which is uh, um, sublime abodings. You know, like appreciative joy. So when somebody else has a good turn, you appreciate that for them, you know, equanimity, you know, just not getting too high, not getting too low. We talk about, in this practice, we talk about the eight worldly conditions, you know, praise and blame, you know, pain and, you know, uh, happiness, you know, there's, it's just that things are gonna happen, they, things arise and they pass away. So, so what we do is we can reflect on positive mind states, like love and kindness, for instance, like, like love and, Everyone sending out love and kindness to, to everyone, starting off with, with yourself. But the, sometimes you, if you can't do that, you start off with a little, like a young kid or something. But there's a skillful means of doing it. But, the, but what it is is just getting ourselves to program ourselves to, to 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 feel that you know to feel compassion, to feel loving kindness, to feel appreciative joy, um, for others. You know, just to realize that that everybody, you know, whatever everybody, whatever someone experiences, that's their karma. The conditions are right for everything that comes. So when somebody has positive things, you know, we can we can celebrate that. So, but the main thing is just really simple, but just being grateful for having a human existence and and having to practice and having this opportunity to be free. So it it it's more about finding something that you can really be grateful for. And, and just continuing to do that. I mean, it could be, it could be like my friend John Kabat-Zinn, he used to say, he probably still says it, he says, as long as you're breathing, there's more right with you than what's wrong with you. And so sometimes it gets that, that way, or, or what Thich Nhat Hanh says, I guess he's coming this weekend, he says, appreciate the non-toothache. So if you understand that, it's, it, you know, you, there's a lot to be grateful for if we're willing to look and just to see. But it has to be what is what you it has to resonate in you. It can't be something that works for me or for her or for her. It has to be something that's close to your heart or or you understand what I'm saying. But it's an attitude, really. It's an attitude of gratitude. It, it's just being grateful and looking at things because once you start doing that, then you're, you're grateful for, you know, for some people, like I, I've seen this before, it's like, you know, like maybe you're not paying attention and somebody beeps you because you're about to go into their lane. And they might give you, a, uh, you know, a symbolic gesture or, <laughs> or they, might, they might say something, but you could thank them, thank you, you know? You, you could thank them for, for help, for, you get what I'm saying? Even when somebody catches you, yeah, you you can change you can change your perception of it and see it as a blessing instead of seeing it as oh, I did something wrong and they're gonna think I'm you know whatever we th whatever the word is the adjective but but it's just really the attitude of gratitude it's just being grateful for everything just grateful for this moment being grateful that we have a place to practice grateful that you know you have the time to come here and do this. It could be a lot of different things. Yes. Yes, could you? So I, I think I heard you say, or 
they introduce you and say that you were working with medical students or doctors? I did. Yeah. I have. Yeah. So I'm also a student and a teacher of MBSR. Okay. And um, I'm also studying working with doctors. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to ask you about the power differential between doctors and patients and how you navigate that and teach that, working with that. What power? <laughs> what power? You're giving them power, mm -hmm. but basically, but you can be respectful and 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 just be be in your own power. But I hear what you're saying. Uh, it's like a transactional analysis, parent to child or whatever. But what I found, especially when I worked at the medical center, that doctors having a bedside manner and allowing the patient to be a uh, a partner in in the process rather than just dictating or saying what needs to happen or because they're, they're not programmed. And so one way to, to do that is, is to help them see that by them being a certain way that they're not getting the results. They may not get the results they want, that they can change their bedside manner or their attitude and, and they could be happier and they could get better results. So I think like anything else is trying to find some common ground, some common value, core values, and, and then communicating. Because when I work with people, what I tend to do is I ask them what they want. And then when they tell me, I say, okay, well, if you do what you're doing, you're not going to get what you want. So you might want to think about doing things another way. So doctor might want to be liked, might want to be more effective in what he does, or she does, wants to be more, feel more helpful. Well, I think those are, those are opportunities. Of course, you could also give them some candy. <laughs> yes, could you pass it? Does somebody over here have a, yeah, would you like to speak? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You're next. All right. Real quickly, um, I'm wondering if there's one teaching or insight or uh, something that you've experienced which happens to resonate particularly well with elite athletes that you've worked with. I'm sure there are many things that you've talked to them about, but is there one in particular that jumps out as really being significant? Yeah, being in the zone. In what? That means that, that, means that see, what happens is you get to a point where, where um, your challenge a little bit beyond your skill level, so you're in a high state of arousal, but you have the poise because you know how to be yourself and you're up for the challenge. And because the conditions are right, it's like you could play forever. All of a sudden, if you're playing basketball, the hoop is huge. If you're playing soccer, the goal is huge. You know, it's, it's just, and you're just in the flow of things and things are happening. You know it's going to happen before it happens. There's no sense of self and time disappears and it's just this sweet, experience man of just just being on your game and just knowing you're going to be okay and there's no reason why you should know but you know it's going to be good today and and you know and so they they like that but they also like to have fun i mean they want they want to they want to dominate but they want to have fun as well and and so it depends on uh, but it's getting them so it, it's that zone experience but it might be could be a number of things. It could be personal, like somebody, like for instance, I, I know a couple of times I was working with, with, with um, professional players and they were in their contract year. 
So they got to play well this year to get a new contract, and they're not getting playing time. So it means they don't have the opportunities. And so just helping them to see that every opportunity in practice, just the, how do you try without trying too hard? And how do you get clear about what you can do and controlling what you can control? And then moving beyond that. Because they would use the excuse, for instance, they say, well, I only play five minutes. It's not enough time to get a rhythm. Well, if you believe that, that's going to be your experience. But what if you just go and try to do what's better? Just focus on what the team needs and focus on making a play or making your teammates better. And then what will happen is by doing that, now all of a sudden the coach is going to play you because the team's better with you out there. So I call it make the coach play you. So no victims. It's like, yeah, but, you know, I don't have to. No. No. You can do that. But if you're interested, try this and see if it works. If it works, cool. If it doesn't, then we'll try something else. But usually it works because, because that's what it's about. It's about making plays, about making, making others better. And sometimes you've got to get out of yourself. Or I used to say you've got to forget yourself to find yourself. That's a good one, huh? <laughs> Yes, sir. I, I like the way he phrased the question. And uh, is, is there uh, about offering one nugget of information, uh, maybe on someone, how do you deal with someone with substance abuse? The same, same deal, man, is why they, they're getting high for a certain reason. And of course, I won't use the language I would normally use, but sometimes it's as simple as, well, how's that working out for you? You know, are you ready to give up the, game, the toys, you know, like, says in the Bible, you know, when you get, you know, sometimes you got to put away childish things or you got to put away things that don't work. Because I know for myself, my best thinking couldn't get me, keep me, you know, work for me. So you have to just, you have to surrender. But you, you have to, you have to get to a point where you don't, they have to want to transform. They, they have to want to do it. And don't say, I want to do it, but, and then keep doing what you're doing. You either, either, you know, it's like, I like to quote my buddy Yoda. I don't know if you folks know who Yoda is, but he's the, you know, the little, um, uh, the, 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 the um, well, he's the master, he's Jedi master. And one of his famous quotes is, do or do not, there is no try. <laughs> so, of course, sometimes we say get off the pot or no crap or get off the pot, whatever. But that's what it comes down to is, you know, reality. And sometimes they have to hit that reality or hit their bottom before they're willing. The way I look at it, the way I talk about it, is like an elevator. So you can start on the 22nd floor. Or you can go all the way down to the basement or the sub-basement. But it's enough to know, okay, I started out at 22 and I'm on 10. And I'm going towards 9. So maybe I can get off because I know where this is going. But everybody has a different bottom. It might be a physical bottom, it might be an emotional bottom. But it's, it's a, I think, creating a possibility of what's happening if they want to let go of that life. Because it's a lifestyle. It makes sense. Yes, you can pass it to Yeah, hi, George. My name's Scott. I just wanted to say thank you for coming this evening and talking to us. And I, I really liked what you were talking about with dealing with elite athletes and uh, what it is that, how you help them get in the zone. How would you, that, what's the analogy of that to get in the zone for mindfulness meditation? How, how do you find, how would you uh, 
direct me into doing something like that. I feel like lots of times I'm sputtering. You know, sometimes I can really get in the groove. I mean, really almost out of my, yeah. totally out of my. The best way to reality. get in the zone is not to try. It's just to be with and just allow things to happen. And then when you get, but you have to be challenged. It's a great question because you have to challenge yourself. So if you're sitting and you're just sitting and you're doing this, you know, you're on the same thing, you might notice that you're, you think you're breathing in when you're breathing out. So maybe you need to focus on a different object or just really stop paying attention to the quality of your mind that's meditating. So you're not just so absorbed with the object, you're not looking at your quality of mind, you're not looking, observing the mind that's observing. But, but it's, it's more about the practice will tell you, for instance, let's, let's talk about a potential process. So you get really, so the, the instruction is to be with the object, right? Then the mind wanders off and you come back and then, then you're with the object. Okay, sometimes, there's a distraction that's stronger so that you keep going to that distraction, right? And going back to the object is like me, you know, you're trying to do it. And maybe you should turn towards the object that's distracting you. And that becomes your meditation. And then what happens is the mind gets really quiet and then you're able to, you know, you, you, you apply your mind and it's able to sustain with whatever you're with and then you start to get some of that so the excitation is positive and then you might even have some happiness. That's not enough. It's also the focus on uh, whatever it is, is arising and passing away, starting to see that it's not the same or see that you get attached to feeling good and being with one object and getting so good at this object that you're not developing insight. You're just developing calm abiding. And so then the, then the challenge is, this is why when you have a teacher or a good friend, they will, whatever you're attached to, they'll take it away. And so the idea is just to understand, and then to read teachings like how's your, how's the, your, your, the five spiritual powers, how's your faith, your mindfulness, your, your effort, concentration, how much wisdom are you developing? So whatever you're doing, it should be sati panya, which is, which is mindfulness and, and wisdom there, what's going on? And so if you sit back and say, okay, and realize, am I relating to this experience based on what happened before, or am I here now as it is now? And so sometimes, you, you know, instead of just following the breath at the, t at the tip of the nose, maybe you, you follow the breath throughout. So you feel it when it first starts, belly expands, and the breath comes in, and then as the belly conflates, you come back up and you can see it. So you can watch the, or you make the, you watch the whole body, or you look at, so sensations, or you look at something that's going to engage you. Like I said about the neuroplasticity, because if you keep doing the same thing, the brain doesn't fire. So it needs novelty. It needs, it needs to be challenged. And it's hard here because we have a lot of, like me, you have a lot of ambition, and it's hard to distinguish between ambition and challenging ourselves. Does that make sense? And so that's why I say here is, is like we have to challenge ourselves, and that's why, you know, having good friends or having... Uh, folks, and you keep complaining about the same thing, at some point they're going to say, okay, you can't talk about that no more unless you do something about it. I'm tired of hearing about that. What are you going to do? You, you hear, get what I'm saying? But there's a lot of teachings and there's a lot you can do to engage yourself more. Thank you. Okay. Could you give it to the young lady next to you? Hi. Thank you. Um, now, there's a question in here somewhere. 
but you, you mentioned how we choose to be happy and can we also choose to be sad? Um, and my question has to do with what if, okay, when you work with people, do you eventually find that there is some underlying trauma that a person has not been able to deal with, which impedes their journey to inner peace? Um, I don't know if I'm Yes, story. well, it, it depends what you mean by trauma. I think, you know, we could talk about the birth trauma if you want. But childhood or childhood or trauma or, or stuff. It, yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's, or we can, yeah, it's, to me it's, we can identify it that way and that's helpful. But the main thing is we just need to see how we are reacting to what's going on and whether we are, uh, uh, react, are we projecting or we see it, or we living through the lens of the past, or we reacting to something that's not there. So, for for instance, if somebody says, "Okay," you might say, "If somebody mentions anything about, you know, that they like my hair or something, I'm going to kill them." So, if somebody walks by and says, "Oh, I like your hair," and then you you react to that, and they don't know what what's going on, and so what's up with that? That's old stuff, and there's some idea about whether people should be doing it or not and it's a reaction to something there and so what we would do is thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate